I wanted to start with a, a couple different quotes. I'm sure somewhere in preaching class they said, don't start your sermon with two long quotes. You know, I first heard these um, on a podcast by Michael Reeves. If you're looking for something that's just edifying and encouraging, Michael Reeves' podcast, Delighting in the Trinity, is a helpful place. But I heard these quotes there, but I wanted to, to read them to you and see which one is most consistent with the truths that we've sang this morning, and more importantly, with the word that we have before us. I put them in your notes if you pick them up so you can follow along. If not, maybe you could pick up a copy on the way out, or, or just try to really focus in here as I read these. The first one is this. There are two angels with a person, one of righteousness and one of wickedness. And this commandment, right, in the context of this quote, it's the commandment to obey the righteous angel. This commandment explains things about faith in order that you may trust the works of the angel of righteousness and that doing them you may live to God. Okay, these quotes are both from the second century. That's the first one. It's from a book called The Shepherd of Hermas. And it became quite influential in the way people thought about their salvation. There's two angels on either side of you, a good angel and a bad angel. And if you listen to the good angel, you will live unto God. All right, here's the other. When our unrighteousness was fulfilled, and it had been made perfectly clear that its wages, punishment, and death were to be expected, God himself gave up his own son as a ransom for us. The Holy One for the lawless, the guiltless for the guilty, the just for the unjust, the incorruptible for the corruptible, the immortal for the mortal. For what else but His righteousness could have covered our sins? What else but His righteousness could have covered our sins? And whom was it possible for us, the lawless and the ungodly, to be justified except in the Son of God alone? Oh, the sweet exchange. Oh, the incomprehensible work of God. Oh, the unexpected blessing that the sinfulness of many should be hidden in one righteous person, while the righteousness of the one should justify many sinners. Now, which of those two quotes requires the death of Christ? Right? Not the good angel and the bad angel. One of those makes much of self. I can and of myself listen to goodness and I can obey and then I can be alive unto God. But that second one, it makes much of the work of Christ and it brings glory to the Son of God. The other highlights our abilities. The other highlights God's work in Christ. So I think as we walk through this passage, we'll see one of those quotes is absolute garbage while the other fits perfectly with what we've sung this morning and what we're going to see in Scripture this morning. All right, so we've made it to Luke's recording of the events of the crucifixion. We're going to take the passage that, that Dave read this morning as one section, but we're going to take a couple weeks uh, to get through it. It really starts with that warning there in verses 26 through 31 that Dave read for us. So that's point number one this morning, the warning of judgment. The warning of judgment. Jesus had been arrested. We saw that he had appeared before various groups, different 
groups of priests and councils that interrogated him. The Jewish leadership definitely wanted Jesus put to death. Pilate wasn't so sure, but he eventually caved to the pressure, turning over the innocent one to the will of the people. And that's where we pick up our narrative here. Now, the custom in a Roman execution was that the person to be executed was to, to carry their own cross. At least, you know, the, the, the beam that would go this way, carry that on their shoulders. And so Jesus, we find in, in the opening verses of our passage, he is unable to carry that beam. And the reason is, Luke doesn't actually give it, give us that here. He's been brutally beaten. And so he's also likely lacked sleep from the night before, being interrogated all night. And what we see in the text, I think, is something of Jesus' humanity. His body is wearing down, unable to bear the burden. So they grab a, name, a man named Simon to carry the cross up the hill. Now it's, it's likely that this man named Simon of Cyrene, Mark's Gospel actually gives um, a couple of his kids' names. And so we look at a detail like that and we say, well, it was probably, his kids were probably significant at that point. And Simon was probably significant at that point. It's likely that they became well-known figures in the early church. That's why Mark mentions his children's names. Paul does mention a, 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 one of the children, or potentially, Rufus in Romans 16. Right? We can't say definitively that it's the same dude. But regardless, we can say this, that Luke the physician, the historian as well, that kind of set out to give an orderly account, he wants to give certainty to his readers, so he points to this guy by name. And so as Jesus is being led to his own execution, the Roman soldiers seize this man named Simon, who's likely in town for the Passover, and and at this point, Jesus turns and he continues his prophetic ministry of speaking truth to the people. There were a lot of people that were following along as Jesus is headed up to the place of crucifixion. And so there's this crowd. Many were likely curious what will become of the one that we just cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And as he's led out to be crucified, they are following along to see what happens. And, and mixed in with this, this multitude of people are these ladies who are lamenting and who are mourning what is going to happen to Jesus. Now this, is, this here is probably not a reference to the, those ladies who were faithful followers, important an important part of Jesus' ministry and supported him throughout his ministry. These are probably people that were there just to kind of, uh, it was so, sort of a social custom to have mourners and lamenters and they would wail out when somebody was dead or in this case about to die. I say that because Jesus gives even these ladies a really stern warning. He warns them of judgment that is coming. And he addresses them as daughters of Jerusalem there in verse 28. And, and, and I think that means that these, these women who are outwardly lamenting and mourning, they're sort of representative of Israel. So that the warning that comes to these ladies 
is not just specific to them, but warns of a judgment that's going to come upon all of Jerusalem. And so what Jesus says to them is they shouldn't be mourning for him. They should be mourning for themselves. Because Jesus knows that his death on that cross will not be his ultimate demise. He will be vindicated through his resurrection. But judgment is coming. And it will fall on Israel for their rejection of the Messiah, their rejection of their God, and their rejection of their King. And so Jesus turns and he seeks to warn them with pretty stern language. He wants to warn them of impending judgment. Now the book of Proverbs says that faithful are the wounds of a friend. Well, this this warning, I think, are those sorts of words. They're hard words. They're words of judgment, but they're faithful. And they're faithful because they're meant to lead a person to repentance, meant to lead a person to see him more clearly. And in fact, it's a demonstration that Jesus, as he's on his way to his execution, continues to show great concern for those around him. So he turns, daughters of Jerusalem. And again, we said with this judgment, it's it's a judgment that's coming for all Jerusalem. In fact, Jesus gives the reason there in verse 29 for why they should stop weeping for him and start weeping for themselves. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the womb that never bore and the breast that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things, when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry. So they shouldn't mourn for him. They should mourn for themselves. The reason there in verse 29, difficult days are coming. Days of judgment are ahead. Specifically for the daughters of Jerusalem and for their children. Now normally, socially, culturally here, It would have been the woman with with lots of children who was considered blessed. But Jesus says that the judgment that is coming for Israel, in light of their rejection of Him, in light of their turning from God, it will be so severe that it will actually be the barren women who will be considered blessed because she will not have to care for her child in the midst of this suffering. She won't have to see her children suffer. The suffering will be so unrelenting, Jesus says, that that they will desire a quick death. That's the idea behind mountains fall on us. Hills cover us. The judgment will be such that that there will be a point where people will come to a realization that this, this suffering is so irreversible and unrelenting that the best possible option at this point is death. So, as I've been arguing, since Jesus is addressing the daughters of Jerusalem here, it makes the most sense that he is referring to the destruction that's coming upon Jerusalem as a sign of the judgment for them for rejecting their Messiah. And we would say this fell about 40 years after the the, the death of Christ. In 70 AD, the emperor, soon-to-be emperor Titus, marched towards Jerusalem and engaged in a five-month siege upon the city. And it was terrible. 
It was unspeakable suffering. Now, Lamentations isn't recalling the same event. Obviously, Lamentations happened before, but you can read Lamentations and get a sense of what it's like when there's an army besieging Jerusalem and there's no escape and you're trapped inside. One historian just highlighted that, that if, if there were more people to slay, the Romans would slay them. So many put to death. The suffering was great. And we argued back in earlier in Luke that the suffering that was coming upon Jerusalem is actually a preview of a greater judgment. In fact, in Revelation 6, it says this, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us. Fall on us. Sounds familiar. Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So I would argue that the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD is an is a image, it's a picture of a greater worldwide judgment when the wrath of the Lamb falls on the world. You see similar language here, calling for the mountains to fall. And the terrible reality for, for, for us is not even death. Not even death can help someone escape the wrath of the Lamb. I wonder if you heard in the passage too that that it's kings and and generals. And they're facing the same predicament as as everyone else. The, The slave and the king and the general are facing the same predicament. The wrath of the Lamb has come for those who have remained in their sin. From the most powerful person to the lowliest servants. The reality is the rich, the powerful, they're no better off. Your amount of influence or your power or your wealth, your bank account, it cannot help you on this day. It cannot help you. Everyone is on equal ground before the wrath of God. Now the good news is that that same truth is true for the gospel. We're on equal footing before the cross. The gospel declares that only Jesus can save. You have to stop relying on those sorts of things that a general might be tempted to rely on, power and influence and money. And you must embrace Jesus by faith. So one of the questions that I think is provoked by the warning that Jesus gives is how will you fare in the face of the wrath of God? And I hope this morning that you hear that as the faithful wounds of a friend. I want you to know Christ if you haven't come to Him. I want you to know Him. He's our only hope. He's the only means by which we can experience the the immeasurable kindness of God and escape the sort of wrath of God that falls on the world in Revelation chapter 6. I think we sang about how we should respond to that this morning. Come ye weary and heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all.
If you think I can, just, I can just listen to my conscience or I can listen to the good angel and I can live unto God, we just sang it this morning, if you tarry till you try that, you'll never come to Christ. You'll never come to Christ. And so Jesus warns them of this impending judgment. And he says there at the end of verse 31, if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? In other words, I think it's just a parable where Jesus is saying he, he's, he's identifying himself as sort of the innocent, the righteous one. If I'm suffering like this, what's going to happen when the judgment falls on the dry wood, those who deserve judgment? Following this warning, Luke moves into the details of the crucifixion. So our, our second point this morning is the crucifixion and the fulfillment of Scripture. Point number two, the crucifixion and the fulfillment of Scripture. So there in verse 32, Jesus, along with a couple of other criminals, were led away to their place of execution. They're led outside the gates. It was customary in Jewish law and actually in Roman law to, to be crucified outside the city gates, up on a hill called the Skoll. In Aramaic, some of the other gospel writers call it Golgotha. Most likely just a place where the, where the hill kind of protruded up from the ground in the shape of a skull. It's, it's probably, it makes for good preaching to say there was a bunch of skulls piled up there, but I'm not sure that's true. What's surprising, I think, as we study this text is the surprising lack of description when it comes to the crucifixion. Just three words in Greek, four words in English. There, they crucified him. It's a little surprising how quickly the Gospels record the actual events of the crucifixion. And I think that's probably because, uh, you know, the fact that it happened is way more significant than how it actually happened. In other words, the theological implications are what the Bible dwells on rather than the, the bloody details. Now, having said that, at the same time, most of the early readers of the Gospels would, read, would hear that and they crucified him. And they would immediately have an understanding of what that meant. So we should think for a moment about the details, right? We want to strike that, that balance this morning of understanding what it meant for someone to be crucified while also not getting so drawn away in the details that we forget the importance of the event itself. The fact that Jesus was crucified is of far more significance. When we think about crucifixion, we know this. It was reserved for the worst criminals or, or public uh, political enemies and rebels. And it was meant to be a deterrent to those who might be tempted to engage in, in gross crimes or crimes against the state. And in order to maximize sort of the deterrence, in order to maximize the effect of that, the cross was particularly cruel, particularly torturous, it was humiliating, and it was done in public. Because they wanted people to see what was going on and say, I better fall in line. To humiliate the victim, he would be stripped of all or most of his clothing. 
again for humiliation. After hauling that cross beam up the hill, he would be nailed to it. It's interesting that uh, even as I say, like the gospel writers don't get into the gruesome details. The, the, the way we know that Jesus was nailed to the cross is Thomas saying, I want to touch the wounds in his hands. Uh, you got to even put things together to understand crucifixion. But he would be nailed to it, and then he would be raised up and placed on the, the, the pole that goes up and down, the upright pole. Then the person's feet would either be tied to that pole or nailed. And what that created was this, this sort of pressure on the body where for every breath you're having to pull yourself up by, your, by the nails in your wrists and push off by potentially the nails in your feet and grab a breath before you slump back down. And eventually that just became, becomes so much that the person is asphyxiated and dies. That's why, as you see, if the Roman soldiers wanted to speed up the process, they would just break the legs and the person couldn't push themselves up and receive that breath and they would die a rather quick death at that point. And so this gives us a sense of the physical suffering that Jesus endured. Now next week we'll, we'll dwell more fully on sort of the inner man suffering, the spiritual suffering associated with being the, the Lamb of God, the wrath-bearing sacrifice. But what Luke focuses on here is how Jesus responds to this onslaught of torture and humiliation. And how does he respond? First, by praying for all those who were in collusion to bring about his death. Right? Jews and Gentiles, the crowds chanting for his death, the cowardly rulers who turned him over, the Roman centurions who are just carrying out the order. Specifically, he prays for their forgiveness. Now we will find out in eternity the extent to which this prayer was answered. There will be a Roman centurion who shortly confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. And Luke, he says, surely this man was innocent. I wonder, and again, this is speculation, not me pointing to book, chapter, and verse. I wonder how many of the 3,000 saved on the day of Pentecost were those ones days earlier chanting for his death. And so Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So in a sense, Jesus has pity on them because they're not, their eyes haven't been opened to see what God is up to. They know not what He does or what they do. I think Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 3 is consistent with the prayer of Jesus here. When, in that sermon, <clears throat> it says that their ignorance does not mean that they were guiltless, but that they did not understand God's good plan. Peter says in, in Acts chapter 3 when he's preaching, and now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. I know that you acted in ignorance, as, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. So here's Peter, I think, Preaching in light of 
the words of Christ here. You acted in ignorance, but it's now time to repent and turn back to Him and see that, that the crucifixion of Christ was the plan of God and it's been fulfilled according to the Scriptures. And now repent and turn back and your, your sins might be blotted out. He prays that they might come to understand who He is and the significance of what He is experiencing. J.C. Ryle said this, The Lord Jesus is indeed most pitiful. That means, like in that context, full of pity. Most compassionate, most gracious. None are too wicked for Him to care for. None are too far gone in sin for His almighty heart to take interest about their souls. He found time to pray for His murderers on the cross. Love like this is a love that passes knowledge. Now one thing that causes us to take a step back and ask, is Jesus not the perfect picture of what He called His disciples to do and be earlier in Luke? He suffers innocently at the hands of the ungodly. Jesus had told His disciples in Luke 6.27, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. And I think we need, to, we need to view that not as some kind of legalistic standard by which we might live up to, but we can look at what, what Christ, who Christ is and what He does here, and we can see the glory of Jesus and the beauty of Christ and His life in here. And we, we're drawn. If, if you've been made alive in Christ, you want to please God. You want to become like Him. And we're drawn to this. And we want to be more like Him. And so if you profess to follow Christ this morning, you must be ready to do good, to love, and to pray for your enemies. It is hard to hate someone that you regularly pray for. And so maybe this morning, you can simply begin praying for that person that is opposed to you. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a a co-worker. Pray for that person that is opposed to you and ridicules you, perhaps. Maybe it's somebody in school with you. They ridicule your obedience to God. As we kind of continue through this text, I think we see that as everyone wants to make a mockery, like everyone sort of playing a role in trying to make a mockery out of Jesus, Luke actually makes, makes a, a, a deeper point that as they want to make a mockery out of him, Scripture is actually being fulfilled. As they mock, God is fulfilling Scripture. You know, this idea of mocking Christ has been a theme that's been developed in chapter 22, chapter 23. We recall that his captors blindfolded him, beat him, asked him then to pro- prophesy who hit you. They put a crown of thorns on his head. Herod ironically dressed him in royal robes. Ha, 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 here's the king of the Jews. Well, this theme continues right through the crucifixion. I think even the idea of placing him between criminals is an act of mockery. One on his right and one on his left. The humiliation continues as they cast lots to see who gets his clothing. You can imagine suffocating there on the cross, knowing that death is closing in. And as you look down, there's people casting dice to see who gets your hoodie and your sneakers. 
you will have, you know, and it is, it's just meant to highlight that the cross obliterates you. That there's no need for your, you to have clothes anymore. You're done. So people can play games to see who gets your clothes while you die. Not only that, but you see in the text the rulers scoffing, soldiers mocking. To scoff is, is to like turn your nose up. We even use it that way. It's to turn your nose up at someone. And so they do that to Christ. And they say, oh, he saved others. Let him save himself. If, if he is the Christ, if he's the chosen one, he can save himself. The soldiers kind of hop on board. I don't, it's like, it's like somebody getting bullied on the playground and some other kids just join in. They don't even know what's going on. They just start making fun. Soldiers, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. You can imagine the smirk on their face as they say these things to the Son of God. Oh, we heard that you did miracles for others. We heard that you brought the dead to life. We don't believe that. You should prove it to us. Save yourself. Again, I hope you just see the incredible meekness of Christ on display here. What self-restraint on the part of Jesus to endure. I mean, I was playing basketball for like the first time in years last week. In the smallest amount of trash talk, I'm like, i got to prove something to somebody. What I'm saying is, you better be thankful that your salvation doesn't depend on someone like me. You better be thankful that your salvation doesn't depend on someone like you. We, we better be thankful this morning that Jesus didn't act the way we would want to act and say, you want me to prove it? I'll prove it. He didn't save himself. And by not saving himself, he's saving people from their sins. By refusing to prove himself in that moment, he's proving himself to be the righteous, suffering servant. The one who goes in the place of the unrighteous. The guiltless for the guilty. The lamb slain for the sins of the world. He's proving, even by not responding to their mockery, that he is who he says he is. And that he is accomplishing exactly what he has set out to accomplish. We should rejoice this morning that he did not save himself. I want to be careful this morning not to turn any sermon, really for that matter, but particularly this sermon, into nothing more than you need to follow Jesus' example. Please don't hear that as we talk about you know, Jesus not responding to reviling, so I, don't want, I want to be careful not to turn this sermon into nothing more than you should follow Jesus' example, but I don't want to ignore the passage in Scripture that look back to this moment and say that Jesus set us an example. So we said, if, you, if we profess to follow Christ, we need to be ready to love our enemies. We might also say, if you profess to follow Christ, if you're walking faithfully with Him, you must be ready to be mocked. And that's so hard. That's so hard because we want to be liked. 
We want to be accepted. We don't want to be the odd man out. Particularly for some of you younger folks, maybe in junior high or high school. I think we should ask the question, should we care what other people think? And the answer isn't quite as easy as saying, who cares what anyone thinks? I used to say that. When I was in high school, I wore like moccasins and basketball shorts to school every day. I'd say, who cares? I don't care what people think. But you know what? I so cared what people thought. I got put in the yearbook because I wore a certain thing. And it's like, I sort of achieved like a thing. Like, yes, they realized I said I didn't care, but I really cared. And I got the attention I was seeking all along. So it's not exactly as easy as saying, who cares what anyone thinks? The truth is we want to be like Jesus so that when people think about us, they see something of Christ in us. They see his character being formed in us, even, even as those who are younger. And I think this is, that this happens like Christ's character is formed in you as you quit thinking so much about what other people think and start looking to the cross and seeing how glorious Christ is truly is. So draw, and this is, this is for all of us, not just younger folks, right? So draw your eyes up to God. You cannot please all your friends even some of the time. You cannot please all of your friends even some of the time, but you can please God. You can please God in Christ Jesus. Honor Him with your life. Trust what He says to you in His Word. Cling to Him if you're being mocked for being a, a, a faithful follower of Jesus and not just going along with what the world says is, is true or popular or cool. Cling to Him because He's endured greater mockery than we'll ever experience. And He can sympathize with you and He can strengthen you in the midst of it. And perhaps a good passage for all of us this morning to memorize would be First uh, Peter 2, 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Live honorably among the Gentiles so that when they revile you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Live honorably among the Gentiles. Not for your own sake, but for the sake of the glory of God. Lastly, we see in verse 38, they hung an an inscription above his head. This is the king of the Jews. Again, that's just another way to mock Jesus. And though it was intended as a joke, it it is right. Ironically, The humiliation and cruel execution of Jesus. Far from demonstrating that he is not the Savior, it actually turns, God reverses the story and demonstrates that he is, in fact, the only Savior. In fact, the Bible had said many of these things would come to pass. Jesus had said earlier that he would be numbered with the transgressors. And he said that it must be fulfilled in him. And the reason he's talked about this idea of fulfillment is because it it points back to Isaiah 53, verse 12. 
It says, Therefore I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. I'll be numbered among the transgressors. I'll be treated like a transgressor. And here he is with criminals on either side. And we saw that he made intercession for the transgressors by praying for their forgiveness. Further, those making fun of Christ probably don't realize that they're essentially quoting Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 is a psalm that we've taught in in this church before in Bible Hour, but it's a psalm that looks forward to the coming of the Messiah and what will happen to the Messiah. And in verse 7 of Psalm 22, it says, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And here's what they say. He trusts in the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him. For He delights in Him. The mockers are quoting Scripture, fulfilling it with their very mocking. Psalm 22 speaks about how lots are going to be cast as the garments will be divided. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. See, they stand there and they mock Christ. But as people who see that and understand the true identity of Jesus, we know that not everything that is mocked is actually worthy of being mocked. Right? Not everything that is mocked is worthy of being mocked. I think that's an error that's easy to fall into. That the thing being ridiculed is being ridiculed for good reason, and we should sort of hop on board and ridicule the thing. Well, here we see that the mocking of Christ, it was completely heinous blasphemous and unjustified, but it did fulfill the Word of God. It did fulfill the Scriptures. It did perfectly demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited one, the King of the Jews. So as Jesus is there on that cross, we, you know, and the, the mockery is coming at Him that, you can save yourself, or God will save him if he's really the chosen one, if he's really the Messiah. Well, we could ask that. Were the accusers right? Isn't it true that God would come to the rescue of the Christ of God? Isn't it true that he would save his son, the chosen one? And we'd say, yes, it is true. But he would not answer that by pulling his son off the cross. He would answer it three days later in the resurrection of his son. Christ would be vindicated by the Father through the resurrection. And so here we have it. The Son of God has come into the world and he has taken on the fullness of a human nature, the fullness of humanity, taken on flesh, however you want to say that, He's become fully human and fully God, yet without sin. He has lived a perfectly righteous life, 
only ever speaking what is true, only ever demonstrating perfect love and justice. He healed, he taught, he served, and he gave himself up as a ransom for many. And his death, this crucifixion, this cruel, torturous death would become a stumbling block to some. And it would become foolishness to others. There are simply some who cannot stomach the idea of a crucified Savior. Give me the guy who came down on the cross and gave it to his, obliterated his enemies, put them in their place and showed them what's up. It's a stumbling block to some and foolishness to others that Jesus stood there and was mocked and died. To others, it's foolishness to believe that Jesus is a Savior, complete and utter folly. But to those who are called, to those whom the Spirit calls, it is the power and the wisdom of God. So to think about those two quotes we began with, a good angel and a bad angel on your shoulders does not require the death of the Son. In fact, that makes a mockery of the death of Christ. Anything that that sounds like moralism, like I can work my way up to God rather than He came down here, makes a mockery of the death of the Son. Only that second quote captures the necessity of the death of Jesus. Once again, that God gave, God Himself gave up His Son, a ransom for us, the Holy One for the lawless, the guiltless for the guilty, the just for the unjust, the incorruptible for corruptible, the immortal for the mortal, for what else but His righteousness could have covered our sins? And whom was it possible for us, the lawless and the ungodly, to be justified except in the Son of God alone? Oh, the sweet exchange. Oh, the incomprehensible work of God. Oh, the unexpected blessings that the sinfulness of many should be hidden in one righteous person while the righteousness of one should justify many sinners. Now that makes much of Christ. May we make much of Him in our hearts and in our lives. Let's pray. Lord God, thank You for the sacrifice of Christ by which we might be counted righteous. And Lord, in light of that, not in order to become righteous, but in light of the righteousness that's been given to us as a gift, in light of that, may we seek to become like Christ as a church together. May we become more loving towards those who who do not care about us. May we become more like Christ. May we grow up into Him. May we cherish the sweetness of the gospel. May it change the way we treat each other and talk to one another and encourage one another. Lord, give us grace to walk consistent with what you've made true about us if we are in Christ, that we are righteous, that we are credited with His very righteousness. May we live as those who want to become like Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.